This is the Geopolitics and Empire podcast, and we talk once again to analyst Tom Luongo of Gold, Goats, and Guns. We will be discussing the state of the world's economy. And just a short public service announcement. I do want to remind listeners and viewers that the podcast is always in need of your support. If you've noticed, I'm doing consistent interviews, sometimes twice a week, and I'm updating the look and design and trying to do more. If you value the work I put in, uh, then do leave a small donation via PayPal, Patreon, and Bitcoin. I thank the people who have left some donations in the past few weeks, uh, as well as subscribe to all of our channels. Leave ratings and reviews on iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, and Spreaker. And now back, Tom. Thanks for coming back, Tom. Oh, thank you, Hervoy. Thank you for having me on again. And congratulations on becoming a dad. Thanks, thanks. Seriously, man, that's the, that's the, that's, that's the big news of the week. That's the big news of the month, period. I hope that people appreciate that because I've got a full-time job, a dad, and doing this podcast in my do this well. spare time. Yeah. Um, I would also like to con con congratulate you, Tom, on your recent appearance on Dr. Paul, Ron, Ron Paul's Liberty Report. Ron Paul was the last U.S. presidential candidate that I felt comfortable uh, voting for. So that was a great interview. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't really feel comfortable voting for Donald Trump, but I'm like, dude, I got to roll the dice and hope that he's not you know, completely full of it. Unfortunately, he is. Um, and it was a great thrill for me to actually finally meet Dr. Paul because it's without him and the Mises Institute, Lou Rockwell and, and, and others, uh, that I wouldn't be here doing what I do today and we wouldn't be having this conversation. I, you know, it just wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. um, it was like meeting one of your heroes. Like, you know, it's like meeting Batman as far as, you know, <laughs> it's like, dude, it's Ron Paul. So, and I gushed after we got done with the interview and I'm like, he was just almost a little uncomfortable. I'm like, I held off. <laughs> All right. Um, well, so we're going to talk about the U.S. economy, uh, well, the global economy, and I haven't talked, uh, broached that subject in a while on the podcast, and I thought we'd start with the U.S. economy. Um, and, you know, speaking in general, the economy yeah. has multiple bubbles. You know, despite what yes. the mainstream media says, uh, I think we're slowly seeing a broader consensus uh, uh, admit that things are getting bad around the world. And we see, you know, just some examples. We see an unprecedented housing bubble uh, in Australia beginning to pop. We see states like Illinois, where I'm from, uh, recently proposing a second property tax and mm -hmm. even a, pl a PlayStation tax because mm -hmm. there's no money for pensions. So that's another bu bubble, the pension bubble. Yeah. The stock market is in the bubble. Uh, it was just reported that insiders sold the most stock uh, in a decade. So I can go on. And one final point, uh, recently an EU economist from a systemic risks expert group and committee says that we are, he put out a white paper that says we're witnessing the disintegration of the current economic system, which historically means, you know, things such as uh, populist unrest and war. But uh, before I get to the first question, I would like to mention what Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, another one of my heroes who I got to interview recently. And in the interview, we were pondering why the system hasn't crashed yet and how the money, money printing can continue to continue. And one of the things he said was that the U.S. dollar as the world reserve is key. And so until the de-dollarization reaches a tipping point, uh, this yeah. re reality show can, can go on. And, and one more thing, I recently read that Gerald Salente of the Trends Journal says that uh, he's revised his forecast that in the near term, the Trump administration is going to do whatever uh, it takes to keep the markets uh, going, uh, especially to ensure re-election. And this mm -hmm. is something you touched on in your latest post on your website. So can you tell us more? Sure. Um, so the, the latest post is, you know, Trump folds to China on the trade talks. And I always knew he would because he doesn't have any leverage. Uh, and 
he doesn't have any leverage because of all the things you just touched on. The pension crisis uh, across the United States, we've got housing, uh, but we've got housing markets bursting, all the high-end um, uh, markets, real estate markets in the United States, they're starting to, to roll over. Certainly New York, um, San Francisco, and others are starting to roll over. Um, we're starting to see a massive exodus out of high-tax states like California, New York, uh, Illinois, New Jersey, and others. They're all coming, unfortunately, to my neck of the woods uh, to export their idiocy. Uh, I'm in Florida. So we have that happening. The, um, but the reason why Trump has no leverage is because we are running a $1.2 trillion deficit this year because he thinks that he can cut taxes, raise spending at the end of the longest cycle, uh, economics, quote unquote, economic boom cycle of the post-war era and somehow take credit for low unemployment and all of these things that are just, as David Stockman points out in his latest book, Peak Trump, which I got a, I had a chance to uh, read an advanced copy of. Uh, uh, I, I, I speak with uh, um, Mr. Stockman behind the scenes pretty regularly now. And um, I, I, his thesis was very simple. It's like, look, you can't go on this massive fiscal debauch and still keep the empire running around the world and still spend all this money and then have the Fed tighten their balance sheet and expect the market to just go out and absorb $1.8 to $2 trillion worth of treasury debt and there not be consequences for this. And the the reality is, is that interest rates at some point have to start rising, right? Um, and they will the minute there's no more appetite for this, when there's a greater appetite, there's, there's a lower appetite for more for buying our treasury debt than there is for the amount that we need to sell in order to keep everything running, right? And the way Trump is trying to keep the stock market afloat is by now backing off on all of the... Uh, all of the uncertainty that he himself introduced into the markets by imposing tariffs and sanctions and this and that and everything else, which has made everybody uncertain. And in economic terms, when you make things uncertain, everybody pulls back on spending, investment, and all of the rest of it. Money velocity slows down when there's uncertainty because and savings rise, which is, of course, anathema to central bank policy, which is always trying to goose the savings rate lower and get money velocity to rise. But that's not going to happen until we're out of this deflationary period. So they keep printing, asset keep, prices keep wanting to fall. They keep printing money to keep asset prices high. And all they're doing is flying into coffin corner, to, to use a, a simple metaphor that, you know, once you're above a certain point, all you can do is keep printing Otherwise, if you don't keep printing and you don't stay on the, that certain course, the whole thing will collapse. But the, but the longer you go on that course, the worse the collapse will be when it finally, when it finally happens. Uh, and that's where we are. And so, yeah, that's where we are. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's one aspect of it. There's, there's others as well. I can just immediately then pop the, pop the Europe or Japan or wherever and we just keep going. But um, there we are. And, you know, well, what about China as well? Um, you know, a lot of people talk about severe economic trouble that China... They're going to have it. ...experience. But, I mean, I feel that they can weather problems uh, better than sure. the rest of us. What, what are you there? Well, the reason, this, this, the main reason, and I, and I pointed it out very succinctly in the article that, that you referenced earlier, um, our debt problems are public. We have $22 trillion worth of public debt meaning there's $22 trillion worth of treasury bonds floating out there. Then there's the $220 trillion worth of unfunded liabilities, along with the some number of trillions of pension debts, which are, these are all public debts that need to be paid. And these are all a, a direct drain on the currency. 
they're a direct drag on the currency because either we have to earn the money to pay the unfunded liabilities back or we have to print to make up the difference and devalue the currency to deal with it. China, most of China's debt, when people start talking about Chinese, the, China, the, the red Ponzi, and this is kind of where um, David Stockman and I somewhat disagree, is that I look at China and I say, yeah, it's a Ponzi scheme. Sure, but it's a Ponzi scheme built on corporate debt. And the Chinese have no problem letting non-strategic companies go bankrupt. They'll, they've got foreign exchange reserves and they've got the ability to print within this framework um, because of their closed capital account. They can let people go bankrupt and it won't affect the international um, value of the yuan. At the same time, they can op slowly open up their capital account and while everybody else is going crazy dealing with the, um, dealing with the, the dollar becoming weaponized against their wishes, they're going to be looking for other people to put their money into and look for bilateral trade with the Chinese directly, which will keep support for the demand for the yuan high. And, and ultimately, the Chinese can bleed off a lot of their worry by slowly but surely absorbing reserve currency-like transactions. Transactions that create the transactions, the trade transactions that, 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 um, that, create the world's reserve currency that is the dollar, right? That creates that those conditions that make the world the dollar, the world's reserve currency. Those transactions will slowly leak away to everybody else, like Paul Curry Roberts was saying earlier, as de-dollarization hits a certain tipping point. Um, that's what's happening. And so not saying that it's happening quickly, but it is happening. The And more of China's trade is being settled in bilateral uh, uh, deals. They're going to launder out their trade surplus with the United States to help their heavily dollar uh, indebted trade partners. It, uh, Turkey is a perfect example. Uh, to They'll just take those trade dollars and send them to Turkey who needs the dollars desperately. And the Chinese don't. And that way they can insulate the, the yuan, uh, the exchange rate of the yuan from their own internal printing or their own internal inflation, deflation, whatever, they can insulate themselves from that. Um, and that's what Trump is most angry about. And if you look at what's happening right now, uh, we were talking about this morning, actually, with my subscribers on my, on my uh, Slack channel, somebody posted up a, a, a big chart of the, of the, the yuan uh, dollar cross and said, you know, we've had this pretty strong appreciation of the yuan over the last couple of months from down from seven down to about 6.6. .6. And they said, well, so what do you think about that? And I said, I think China's reloading. So they always go through these long, these, these periods of sharp devaluation and large amounts of, of, um, of, of credit injections to keep markets from collapsing, but only certain markets from collapsing. And they allow plenty of markets to collapse. Um, but they can't allow the, um, the exchange rate to fall too far because then their export economy will, will, will collapse. So what they do is they, 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 like everybody else, they devalue up to a point. Then they allow the thing to, to appreciate. Credit, they're injecting credit while their uh, currency is appreciating versus their highest trade part, their their highest uh, trade partner, right? And then they'll just go on another um, devaluation spree, and they'll keep doing this. And they've been doing it now for years. And I just I listen to the China doom and bloom, doom and gloom talk, and I just say to myself, I've been hearing this since 2012 when I used to when I used to work with a guy in Vietnam. I remember watching Mark Faber, who I like and who I've met, and say, you know, look, China is going to crash. It's all going to. It's going to be. It's not going to just be a hard landing. It's going to be an explosion. I mean, and that was in 2012. Hasn't happened yet, and it's not likely to happen because the Chinese, the, the because the the guys who run the PBOC, the the People's Bank of China, 
uh, I know I'm going long here, but this is, this is the last important point. Um, they, as Martin Armstrong constantly points out, they've worked in U.S. bond and, and commodity pits. They've traded for a living before they went back to China to then run the central bank. Our guys were all trained in the Ivy League. They're all Ivory Tower um, Ivy League guys. They've never traded a stock in their life. They have, they've never held a job they, that you know, wasn't handed to them. They don't understand they don't understand economics from the perspective of somebody who actually engages in economic activity, right? That it wasn't handed to them. They, they, they don't understand it. And so it's not in their blood. It's not in their, it's not in their soul. Their, their life hasn't depended upon, you know, trading bonds or trading stocks or trading commodities. Um, the Chinese have, they have the practical experience and that's the bigger, that's the big difference. That's why they're constant. That's why the Fed is constantly outmaneuvered by the PBOC. It's sad. Yeah, I I think I'd agree with you. And you know, myself uh, being a history major, having been to China on a you know a couple times, and and the longer, the broader historical context and the cycle. You know, the 19th century was China's uh, century of humiliation, mm-hmm. and I mean these are longer term cycles. So now China is just and this this you know momentum that builds decades and over centuries. And so now it's like kind of China's uh, turn. Um, so. There, yeah, so I, I would kind of agree with you. And so, yeah, and, and look, and, and this is not to say that I'm happy with the society that the Chinese Communist Party has built, right? That I'm not doing that. I'm, I mean, I'm just not going there because I'm a staunch libertarian. I believe in freedom and markets and all this other stuff. And I, you know, and I mean, to a point where you know, you want to have that discussion one day. I'll, I'll shock you at how close I almost sound to like a commie in terms of my, in terms of my in terms of my anarchy, right? But that's not what we're t- discussing. We're talking about what's actually happening in the world and then to analyze what's happening in the world today. Um, this is what's happening. And the United States is, and under Trump, we're not doing anything to stop this dynamic. Trump was hired by us to stop this dynamic. And yeah, to take on China, but not to take on China and destroy us in the process. Okay. And if he had decided to go on a a, a big tax cut, go for a hard tax cut that would actually not be revenue neutral. So a revenue neutral tax cut is not a tax cut. It's not a tax cut. It's just a tax redistribution. Okay. That's one, but that was politically what he could get away with. Well, that's still useless. Um, But then again, so is Trump. Um, You don't do that and raise spending. And then demand that the Fed keep interest rates at the zero bound, which they've done for the last 10 years and which has created all these massive imbalances and all these bubbles that we've talked about previously. No, you have to go on. You have to do the opposite. You have to put the money back into the productive portion of the economy by not extracting it through wealth, through taxation in the first place and wealth um, destruction through money printing in the first place. That's what you have to do. You want to create, you want to improve the trade imbalance the United States has? Cut spending by a half a trillion dollars a year, and then watch it happen. Half a trillion, a trillion. They could cut a trillion dollars out of the budget tomorrow, and I don't think that one um, one American would, other than the people whose jobs were cut, would care. I mean, we were, had our government shut down for forty days, and we're like, does anybody notice? Because the things that we actually interact with in our government were all still open. It was all the froth that was shut down. It was all the stuff that we don't need. The post office still worked. Right, <laughs> you know this the stuff that we came up all day because the IRS wasn't going to going to send out uh, um, um, refund checks. Well, that was all just political. That's all just political nonsense. They could have done so. They could have 
gotten rid of all their auditors for a while. They could have put laid those guys off. That'd been fine. I'd been okay with that. That would have been good. So, yeah, and you know, regarding China, I'm no China apologist uh, either. It's, right. it's funny, you know, like yourself and I when we do this the, the podcasts and and YouTubing and stuff. You know, we, I get called all kinds of things: Russian propaganda, um, socialist, communist, and like, come on, you know. So. Uh, and then my last I got caught, uh, yeah, I, I did this on Monday night. I went through the same. I actually did this on my live stream the other night. I said the same thing. I said, dude, the, the funniest thing that I've ever been called is a neoliberal. I'm like, I'm like the ant, Mr. Anti-globalist. I'm like, really? But again, like I said, it was a Russian lefty who called me that. So I'm not surprised, you know? And, like yeah. <laughs> and, and, that <laughs> last, and the, the last interview, I interviewed Patrick Wood, and we talked about this Chinese technocracy and this really dystopian um, system they got going there with this social credit scores. And I, you know, I wouldn't want to live in that, that kind of country. And I have no interest now, you know, visiting, uh, well, lo long-term wanting to go visit and, li and live in China with that kind of system. Sure. Um, and, you know, so we talked about the U.S. economy. Uh, so I'm a... Uh, I was born in the U.S., so I'm a U.S. citizen. I'm a patriotic uh, American, I consider myself. Uh, and then, so we talked about China, and now going to the EU. I'm also EU a citizen, because I, right. I think they're Croat. And so I, I have right. Croatian citizenship, and we were the last to join the EU. And that's, uh, you've been writing about that lately as well, and that's a basket case. Uh, and you can talk, there's so many things to talk about, but you can you know, kind of, so, yeah, I, I don't know how much time we have left we can go I mean we have time no, I'm just, no I, I'm gonna, and I know it's like what I mean is that we could be here all afternoon and still not touch you know on most of what's what's wrong with with Europe the big thing with Europe is that Europe is in the is caught in the middle ultimately in the big power struggle between the United States and China right and they have to make a decision at the same time they also have their own imperial ambitions right the people who are who back the eu who are in charge of setting the political agenda for the eu the people who 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 um who pulled the strings of the merkels and the tusks and the junkers and the rest of them before him van rompuy and all of it it's all it's all part of this 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 plan for euro uh, Euro european integration um they have their own imperial ambitions and but at the same time you know, their imperial ambitions are now running up against the United States imperial ambitions. And at the same time, they have a structure, a currency structure that is destructive for most of the members of the EU that aren't Germany and Holland. I think the report came out the other day. It was only two countries that are actually benefited from the euro. Germany and I think it was Holland. It was either Holland or Denmark. I always get those, I always get them confused. And it actually is quite sad that I do. I think it was the two of them. Um, uh, no, most not notably Germany, but everybody else has just basically been hollowed out because the whole Euro structure was designed to undervalue German labor, right? By basically making it the Euro as, you know, the a massively devalued mercantilist version of the Deutschmark, which then overvalues, relatively speaking, everybody else's labor within the EU causing a destructive dynamic that that and then you create that along with giving out a blanket credit rating basically to all the euro member states so everybody in the eurozone is the people are willing to borrow against germany's credit rating because ultimately germany is going to back up is what undergirds the value of the euro right so greece gets to borrow with germany's credit rating and then people wonder why they borrow too much money 
to run an economy that is being strangled to death by an overvalued currency relative to their productivity for their productive capacity. And then the whole thing eventually over time just completely collapses in Greece, Italy, Portugal, Spain, France, everybody, everyone. Um, the Brits at a certain kind of instinctual level in 2016 understood this and said, okay, it, we don't even have the euro and we don't want to be a part of this. That the imperial ambitions of, we still have our own imperial ambitions in some ways. And we don't want that anymore. We, we want to be a part of that. And of course, the people with the imperial ambitions within the British deep state and the British ruling class and who are allied with the rest of the European integrationists don't want Brexit to occur. And so now we're watching them try to scuttle Brexit. And the reason why this is important economically is because currencies collapse when confidence in the governmental institutions collapse. And right now we're watching in real time, Brits lose faith fundamentally in the political process that has um, that has shaped their lives since 1642. This is historic when you really stop to think about it. It's the oldest parliament in the world. The, they're breaking rules that are hundreds of years old to try and scuttle Brexit. They're pulling out every stop imaginable to destroy what's left of British sovereignty. And the British people are going to revolt against it if it if it is fundamentally betrayed, which it looks like it's going to be. Now, I'm also kind of of the opinion that Theresa May may be playing possum here to try and run the clock out for a, a hard Brexit, and nobody believes her because I've called her the gypsum lady in the past because she's no iron lady. But I don't know. You know, your guess is as good as mine, and I'm willing to flip a coin to see what happens here. If there's an extension to Article 50, if there's a second referendum, if any of those things happen, it's going to destroy what's left of the United Kingdom. And the European integrationists will win the battle and lose the war in the same way, effectively, that American neoconservatives are trying to hold on to the empire everywhere, poking conflicts in, Pakistan, in, Pac in Kashmir to keep Pakistan and India angry with each other, scuttling um, North Korean peace talks, refusing to allow Russia and China to sign a peace deal so they so to Japan uh, not Russia and and Japan to sign a peace deal for ending World War II so they can get a pipeline Syria Iraq Afghanistan Venezuela now Nicaragua they're doing they're poking they, they refuse to give up on any of this stuff their heads in the sand and they're on autopilot and it's destroying everybody's faith in the government institutions because Trump was hired fundamentally to drain the swamp and the swamp is saying absolutely not. And that eventually is what's going to cause all of these bubbles to collapse when the tipping point may not actually have to be de-dollarization as much as it is just a political earthquake. And I keep looking at certain political, and to me, all the political earthquakes surra are surrounded, are, happen in the near term, they, they're centered on Europe. That's Matteo Salvini going after the European parliamentary elections, Brexit, all of these, these are the things. Catalonian independence is now back on the table. You know, at some point, Merkel, if she feels confident, is going to try and break away, is going to try and break Germany away from NATO. At the same time, she's also going to try and sanction Hungary to the point where they're not even a voting member anymore. What happens when Hungary just says, oh no, we're out of here and we get hung exit or we get, you know, hung leave or whatever you want. I can't even come up with a good one off the top of my head, which is really, I like the Portugal, I think my favorite. So I don't know. It's just, the whole thing is just a, it's just a mess. Uh, and, uh, and I think that Europe is the, is the catalyst. 
Yeah, and historically, I mean, the two world wars. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot going there for for that forecast of years. So we've covered a lot of ground: U.S., China, Europe, um, and maybe if you could just mention your take on uh, precious metals and, and crypto. I believe Palladium just hit a record fifteen hundred, and I think I when th- when when things get bad. You know, we'll see metals and crypto uh, jump. Sure, in. sure. I, so there's two things. Um, yes, uh, the name of the newsletter is Gold, Goats, and Guns. <laughs> I can't make it any plainer where my where my heart lies in all of this stuff, right? Um, gold is doing very well right now. Specifically, from a technical perspective, gold is reaching a decision point, which is the Brexit hard line in the sand between 1365 and 1375 an ounce. But if you look at gold in euro terms, which I've been... Uh, cataloging for my subscribers for months now, it's just breaking out all over the place. So the, the gold relative to the euro, um, technically speaking, is in a massive bull market already. Um, doing very well against the yen as well. The dollar is the last one. And to get a new bull market in gold, we'll need a, a weekly, first a weekly and then a monthly closing price above that, that post-Brexit high. Right? That, for, that firmly states, okay, something has changed sentiment-wise. That's not going to happen until the EU, EU loses a major fight. Okay, so that's why they refuse to lose. They try, they're, trying to, they're trying to win this Brexit fight because they understand that if they lose it here, then we're going to lose the confidence of the markets and then everything is going to collapse very, very quickly. They don't have any options. I mean, you can argue that these people are evil, which they are. Donald Tusk is evil. Uh, Van Rompuy, Juncker, these people are evil. But at the same time, they don't have any options either. They're trapped by their own structure and their own systems that, and their own lies that they can't get out of it. Because, and gold will, will, you know, will call their bluff on all of this eventually. Um, crypto looks to me like it's setting up very closely right now. Crypto looks like it wants to have formed a bottom. But I can't say that until I see, really until I say a weekly close above four grand on Bitcoin. But I'm starting to see, I'm start, you're starting to see some, some money move back into the space. It looks like the, we're, we're well past Max Payne there. Um, I think crypto, some version of the crypto markets eventually will be um, integrated into the, the new global monetary system. This, what we've discussed today, will see a change. We will see a new global monetary system by the time this is over. And the people who are currently in charge and on autopilot have plans on how to deal with that. When the system, when it becomes obvious that the system has collapsed and the IMF will then probably try and swoop in with the SDRs, Jim Rickards has been saying for years, the real question is whether that's going to work. I don't think it's going to work. I think we're going to get back to a gold cover clause of some, of some uh, global gold cover clause of some form or another. And that at the same time, crypto is going to be on the agenda and the question is whether it's going to be privately held crypto or privately generated crypto like Bitcoin or whether it's going to be government crypto, which will just be more government nonsense. And whether or not, once, because once we're free from, 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 this is a philosophical point, once we're free, once we finally free money and we have the technology to do so, and it's the first time in our history as a, as a species where human decision making can be removed from the creation of new monetary units. This is a point about crypto that very few people ever make. That's the distinction about Bitcoin. Once you remove the potential for human corruption of the decision to make a new, make more or less monetary units, once that's done, it strips away the entire power level 
that we're dealing with today. This whole wealth inequality thing that comes from the central banks, comes from all of this stuff, that gets stripped away. That's the power of crypto. And I don't know that Bitcoin is the right structure, but philosophically, it's the right idea. There's plenty of other coins out there that may get that, that structure right, um, but we'll see. But something like that is going to have to occur, and it's going to have to be non-government run. It's going to have to be run independently, and we have to have the, the faith in it to have it run independently of any governmental structure. And at that point, then all these fights about borders and behavior and all of this stuff, that starts to melt away. Decentralization starts to take over, and human freedom can actually then truly begin to flourish. I really fundamentally believe that. But it starts with money. A corrupt money cor begets a corrupt society. And we have corrupt money and a corrupt society. I'm not as uh, optimistic as you on having an independent uh, kind of crypto uh, currency. But, you know, fair enough. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens down the line. I always feel yeah. that they're, they're going to find some way, you know, maybe oh. Bitcoin was a dry run. And then they're going to put in their, uh, you know, central bank backed uh, cryptocurrencies. I mean, we'll don't, 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 um, don't take that, that optimism at a philosophical level to say that it's not going to be an absolutely wild ride in between now and then, and it might not happen the, even this monetary cycle. It may take another full human 85 year cycle for this to happen. That, you know, if you look at the, we talked about history earlier, if you look at the sweep of the last 150 years, the last two Gener um, the two human cycles, like the fourth the cycles, like the Strauss and Al guys sort of talk about in terms of fourth turning, right? The, the four turnings. In my mind, we're looking at the rise of Marxism and then the exploration of Marxism over the last two cycles, right? The rise of the nation state dominated kind of the, the last one. And then this one, it's all been, it's all been about fitting Marxism into the, this toxic idea of the nation state. And frankly, I do believe both of these things are actually toxic, fundamentally toxic ideas. But we as humans are like, are no different than the way Winston Churchill described Americans, which is that Americans will eventually do the right thing after exploring all other options first. And I really do believe that as a species, we do these things. We are going to um, poke and prod and explore all the possible versions of the nation state or all possible versions of Marxism as a philosophical conceit um, in an implementation until we finally reject all of it because we just have to. And Marxism has been refu was refuted by Mises back in, back in the 20s. It was refuted by the, practically by the fall of the, uh, of, of the Soviet Union and the collapse of, of Mao's China and, you know, the killing fields and Ho Chi Minh and all of it. It's, it, it the 20th century has been is nothing but a massive refutation of Marxism philosophically and practically. And yet, it still persists. Are we ready to, are we ready to, to, to get rid of it? I don't know. It may not happen this cycle. We'll see. I think that's a good place to end. And can you tell us uh, how people can best support uh, you, at your work, and where they can follow you? Sure. Um, my blog is tomluongo.me. If you search for me or Gold Goats and Guns, you'll find it. It's also goldgoatsandguns.com. You can follow me on Twitter, not that I'm incredibly active there, at TFL1728. Uh, I have a YouTube channel as well. Again, just search either Tom Luongo or Gold Goats and Guns. Uh, I do pod, I do um, live streams, open Q&A uh, live streams on Monday nights at 8 and Friday nights at 8.30, uh, as well as uh, short videos on a, a 
fairly regular basis as well. Uh, I also write uh, paid gigs for a Strategic Culture Foundation as well as now MoneyMarkets.com. And, uh, you know, you can support the work through Patreon slash Gold Goats and Guns where you can, uh, where I do twice weekly uh, private reports for my subscribers um, as well as uh, publish the monthly Gold Goats and Guns investment newsletter. All right. Hopefully, I don't neglect to get Tom Luango, Luango on more often. Uh, and sure. as, as he mentioned, uh, be sure to check out his newsletter. I think it's $12 a month on his website and Patreon. Support the independent media. Uh, thanks again, Tom. Thank you, Hervoy. And, and enjoy the, the, your, your wonderful little nugget of joy that is your child. So please enjoy.